A week or two ago, news came down that the Oakland A's are moving. And this saddens me. I bet you can figure out why. Uh, is that one of the stadiums that you haven't been to? No. Good guess, no. but no. It's one of the stadiums I have been to. <laughs> I see. Now you have to go to another one. Yeah, yeah. And and what's worse is they're headed to Las Vegas, which is nicely going to nestle in with like a, a Vegas-Phoenix-Denver trip that's like a nice little, you know, loop. But I want to actually get Phoenix and Denver done before they're going to move to Vegas. So I may be back. I, I may have to rethink this goal and just be like, eh, screw it. Oakland moved and I'm just not going to see them <laughs> in the new place. I've already had that happen one time because this has taken me far too long and one team moved cities. So I was down one. Um, yeah, when I when I found out that they were finally going to be, they, they finally just called it a day and said, we cannot make it work in Oakland. We're leaving. I'm like, great. Well, now, you know, you've just shot my whole little plan to shit. Well, hey, if it's in Vegas, like maybe you can lay down one bet and just cover the whole trip. I love your optimism. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it works there, I'm told. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 306 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie-loving podcast of the Matinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. Good people, the time has come where I turn one year older. This week, I'll be celebrating my name day on Wednesday, June the 1st. And around here, that comes with a tradition. You see, years ago... I noticed that films the week of my birthday are difficult to podcast about, mostly because of the proximity to the American Long Weekend, the blockbusters that drop, and cinema's tendency to keep smaller, conversation-worthy films away from those beasts. Don't get me wrong, I enjoy a good car chase film, I enjoy a singing mermaid, I enjoy this all as much as the next lad, I just don't think they leave very much to talk about. So instead, years ago, I started a little tradition. On the week of my birthday, I bring in a good friend and we talk about an all-time favorite film. The results have been a lot of fun. We've learned what films are aging well and which I might start caring a little bit less about. We've looked at some mastery on screen and how modern life is reflected. It is, quite simply, a lovely way to celebrate on this little podcast, but I cannot celebrate alone. Today, to help me celebrate, we bring back a dear friend. A gent who has always kept this podcaster entertained and inspired, who showed me how little I like sake at the time. I like it a little bit more now and how much I like the American Midwest. He is a dear old friend whose voice I miss. And I do mean voice. The one time grand poobah of Row3.com and host of the Row3 Cinecast. Andrew James is here from Minneapolis, Minnesota. How are you, sir? And a happy birthday to you, sir. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, I'm doing well. Excited to be back at it. It's uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be a fun time on episode 306, where my favorite movies are concerned. We've done a few of these, and if you're curious to hear some of the other ones, I mean, we talked about Bull Durham, we've talked about we did Vertigo last year, we've talked about Almost Famous. Um, if you're curious to listen to any of those episodes, they'll be in the show notes for this um, this post on episode 306. We are going to talk about Heat from 1995 by Michael Mann. We're not going to do a full Know Your Enemy, but we do have one question for Andrew James. So this is a protracted Know Your Enemy. So in honor of the birthday episode, I thought of it this way. Andrew James, if you could host a screening, and let us qualify this as saying like, 
a lively screening, not just like you and the missus in an empty theater. For your birthday, in honor of your birthday, what film would you want to host? Would you want to get up there and introduce? What film would you want to screen? And we're talking like this is like a 35 millimeter print in a theater. Sure. Big, works. Yep. Yeah. Okay, whatever I yeah. want. It's my birthday. I don't care if other people don't have fun. I'm going to have fun when we watch okay. the Beastmaster. <laughs> oh my God. I narrowed it down to like, you know, 15 films and whittled <laughs> it down and went, I've seen, I love the Beastmaster. I've seen it a billion times, probably just as much as I've seen Star Wars. Never saw it in a theater, obviously. I was okay. like nine and it was on, you're, you're old enough maybe where HBO actually stood for, hey, Beastmaster's on. on. Because it was on literally every other night. I mean, it was just on all the time. Right. And so I watched it and I love it and I still love it. And I still, I still love it and defend it. I won't say objectively, but without the nostalgia factor involved, I legitimately think it's like a good film. (laughs) Tell people what this opus is about. I feel like Beastmaster has kind of gotten covered over in time like it was a big pop culture thing for a while but i kind of feel like in the 30 years or so that it, or 40 years since it was released that it might have been a little uh, uh sullied um yeah it's probably gotten a little bit forgotten although last year the year before vinegar syndrome just released like a really nice 4k box that just oh, wow. unfolds with all the artwork and they just went uh, the full nine yards and it's really great it's a fantasy sword and sandals movie but the the fantasy is pretty minimalistic it's it's kind of like conan the barbarian (laughs) um i like this a lot more than that but it's just about a a guy who has uh powers to communicate with animals um and so he befriends some some various animals and goes on a quest to save the lady and kill the bad guy and free the people and all that kind of stuff um but it's just and it's a uh, Don Coscarelli directed it. It's actually really well done. It's really cool. Like all the costume design, everything's really unique. They don't try to do like a lot of computer stuff, early computer stuff, like crawl or like right, right, like crazy special effects. They okay. keep it simple and makeup and practical, and it just looks cool. It's okay. it's really badass. Yes. It's got some corny stuff to it, for sure. I mean, even stuff like Conan, you know, it, it's got yeah. some, some warts over the years, right? But but it is, it's really fun. It's got a nice running time. It's got a great pace. Um, all sorts of, like I said, just all sorts of great villains and creatures. And I, I, it's it's just awesome. And it's, and I, it's obviously, it's a movie that's just like near and dear to your heart, basically, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'll, I mean... I wouldn't be offended if some somebody who's like 25 watches it now and says, this is not for me. I, I get it. <laughs> right. But I would, at the same time, I would encourage people to check it out. If, you, if you're younger, people our age probably know it, mm-hmm. at least listening to this show. They've, they've probably seen it. But um, younger folks that maybe haven't heard of it or it's not on HBO every day anymore, I'd encourage you to at least check it out. Give it, give it 25 minutes to half an hour. And I'll include the trailer cool. in the show notes so that people can can get an idea of what we're in for. I mean, I, I like that idea that as much as I like stuff like Vertigo and Citizen Kane and, and you know, Persona and those kinds of like really more cerebral movies or even 2001, if I was going to have a bunch of people 
at a theater for my birthday and get up there and talk about a film for, you know, two or three minutes before it starts and tell people why I love it. You know, I, I, I don't know if I'm necessarily going to put on major league, but I'm certainly not going to put on persona. So I think you've got this nice little in between of mm-hmm. here's something that's, you know, it's, it's kind of silly, but not too silly. I think it's fun. I, I enjoy it. It's, it's, you know, near and dear to my heart. Um, it, enjoy it, everybody and happy birthday to me. Exactly. It represents me and it's sort of in that midnight madness mm-hmm. feel to it. So I think people would have a good time. I like it. All right. Well, you know, one of these days, put it on the bucket list of here's what I want to do one birthday. I want to rent out a theater and tell people to come watch Beastmaster. See? Love it. Yeah, there we go. Well, there we go. There's the uh, there's the birthday. Know your enemy. Uh, you know, <laughs> come on back next June. We'll do it again with somebody else. Um, but we have a movie to talk about. And uh, as I mentioned, it is one that is a favorite of mine. It's uh, the not quite new slang for episode 306. Heat right after this. Heat was released in 1995. It's written and directed by Michael Mann. It stars Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Val Kilmer, Tom Sizemore, Denny Trejo, Ashley Judd, Dan Voigt, Diana Venora, Amy Brenneman, Ted Levine, Natalie Portman, Will Vickner, Hank Azaria, Dennis Aysbert, and Henry Rollins. Heat is a heist film, a movie that begins with an armored car being held up by a gang of thieves we quickly learn are consummate professionals. They are headed up by Neil McCauley, that's De Niro, taking the task of finding and stopping this band of crooks is a detective with the LAPD robbery homicide named Vincent Hanna, a constant professional himself, played by Al Pacino, if sometimes mildly eccentric. The film has a sit and watch as these two sides play cat and mouse, with McCauley planning the next huge score, while Hanna tries to get in a position to take him down when it happens. The film is filled with moves and counter moves, taking us deep into the lives of all the pieces on the board. There's a lot of conversation lately about length. Some film lovers uh, want movies to go as long as they need to go. Put us into the world for hours, if need be. Stretch out the whole story. While others feel as though runtime is overindulgent and masturbatory. Heat is not a short film, clocking in at nearly three hours, so the canvas that it decides to paint on might be an interesting place to start. Pop quiz hotshot. In an age where seasons of TV are being treated as one long film, and directors are being given more and more rope to do what they want to do, how does Heat paint with the brush that is runtime? Interestingly enough, I've never loved this movie. I've always kind of liked it. And okay. part of the reason I didn't love it, I won't say it's because of the runtime, but it is because of so much stuff going on that doesn't seem like it's part of the heist okay. and the, or, the, or the characters or the action that I wanted. In years past, yeah, I, I just kind of like found so much of it sort of tedious. I don't want to say boring. It's never boring, but it, it just... There's just so much. It kind of felt like a mess. As time has gone on, and I've watched it more and more, and I've listened to a few podcasts about it, um, and my wife loves it, I've started to really actually, now I am starting to love this movie because <laughs> because of all that stuff. Right. And 
Now I think, I don't know, really, maybe a couple little things you could cut out of it, but I I don't want to cut anything out of here because everything in here is relevant to one of the characters mm-hmm. and their and maybe not their backstory but their motivations why they do what they do who they are um and it also messes all these things that are going on that aren't part of the heist whether it's you know charlie's there not charlie's there and ashley judd's um character or natalie portman all of those things are important to what these characters are doing and i wouldn't want to cut any of that out i you know that's i think that's the thing is there's nothing that's wasteful. There's nothing that I'd say is really, you know, extraneous to the story. Like one of the things I think about is a, for instance, is, uh, you know, when we, when we go all the way about all the way up to my all time favorite film, almost famous, there is a director's cut of almost famous. That's two hours and a half, I think, or two forty. Um, it's a long cut. And, a lot of the stuff that's in it is wonderful. It's a lot. It's a lot of really charming stuff like the, you know, the, 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 the interview on the radio and, you know, the full run of, of stairway to heaven, but it's not there. It's a lot of things that are just kind of neat, but aren't needed. There's a, everything that's in this movie, um, especially with some of the B and C characters are all in service of the story. And I think it makes it it makes it all work. I hope that there's not a director's cut of this movie. I can't imagine that there is. Well, I, it's funny enough. I was about to say the version I watched today. Yeah. Says Heat, director's definitive edition. Okay. How long was it? Do you remember? It's two hours and fifty minutes. Okay. So, so it's, yeah, it's the same one. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm not sure. Was, yeah. It was always three hours. I mean, you know, if anybody's who's anybody who's listening to this remembers. When when it was on VHS, the widescreen copy of this was two tapes. That's usually how you knew it was a long movie. Um, But when it comes to length, I mean, there's two movies that I got to thinking about. Um, One I actually mentioned on the last episode. Last episode, we were talking about Bo's Afraid, talking about a long movie. Well, you know, we, we were talking about Bo's Afraid, and I brought up a comparison of Heaven's Gate the uh, the 1981 82 movie with uh, Christopherson and Christopher Walken. It's really um, long. It is. It is. It's yeah. it's incredibly long. And the thing is, is that I I finally sat down and watched it last week. I was like, you know, I have talked about Heaven's Gate a bunch of times just because of what I know about it. I'm actually going to watch it so that I can speak about it knowledgeably. And sure enough, there's I mean, there's a lot of really fantastic sequences in that movie. But a lot of them are all just they're nice, but they're not necessarily like there's a whole 15 minute sequence where it's just the community partying at a roller skating rink in, you know, 1870, whatever. And I mean, it's a neat little sequence to watch these people in a barn when roller skating wasn't really a thing and watching a guy zipping around them with a fiddle while he (laughs) roller skates. But it does nothing for the plot. You know, so this whole 15 minute sequence is not at all necessary. And that's just one. There's like a 20 minute college speech at the beginning. There's a 30 minute battle that ends the whole thing. And I'm like, you need to like at all in all of these junctures, this this shit adds up. You know what I'm saying? So that was a film where the length was mostly because of bloat. And while a lot of these things were nice, if you wanted to keep them, maybe you should have tightened them up. On the other hand, another movie that I thought about also 
that is very long is a documentary from I want to say it's from around 2011, 2012 by Weissman called at Berkeley. Did you ever see that one? No, I haven't even heard of it. Okay. It's, it's about, um, it's about the university of California and it's, it's at least three hours might even be four. And it deals with all these facets of college life. Um, you know, the, the tech that's being developed there, uh, you know, sp- what's happening with sports, what's happening with the, just the political landscape. Any university, of course, is a, you know, political cauldron. And in the middle of this is this like 25 minute board meeting that is going to have a really heavy influence on what is to come in the future for the University of California. And Weissman wanted to include that meeting in its entirety. He didn't want to trim it down. He just wanted to, everybody walks into the room, they have this meeting, everybody walks out. And the only way to include the meeting as a complete meeting was to build the whole movie up. So he actually, rather than trimming, rather than trimming the meeting down, he built the rest of the movie up to make that meeting seem like a normal pace. In, in comparison. So huh. he doesn't, I mean, he does that a little bit. He does that because the, the actual bank heist, which I don't know why, but I just realized watching it this week comes with an hour to go. Yeah. In this I noted the same thing. <laughs> I was like, it's not the climax of the movie. No, I'm like, wow, that little, that, that, that runtime bar at the bottom of the movie, still has a lot of daylight on it. And in order to make that feel balanced, in order to make that heist feel, you know, like it's not just the entire movie, you got to build the rest of it up, you know, and that includes the planning of it. That includes meeting all of these characters and the characters that are alongside these characters and really getting this world in order to make it all seem even. So it's incredible to watch how these different storytellers are approaching a tool like length and saying, okay, I'm going to tell you a long story, but some of them are are telling you a long story and you wander in the weeds for half the afternoon. Others tell you a long story and you're like, shit, that felt like five minutes. Despite the runtime. I agree that it doesn't feel like three hours. No, it really, it really moves. And it's not all action. This is not an action movie. I see it on people's like top 10 action movies of all it's time. Not, like, it's not even a lot of action. Not like, forget about all action. There's like, yeah. there's, there's like two scenes. Yeah. You know, and I a mean, few, a few fist fights in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not much at all. Um, and even the heist, like you're talking about all the buildup and stuff and uh, planning for the heist and stuff. There isn't even that much planning of the heist itself that we see. More of it is, how are they going to do this, you know, without Vince and Hannah catching them? How are they going to outsmart the cops? And yeah. how are the cops going to try to catch them? Like, there isn't, the, I don't, at least I don't remember, there's not like a blueprint scene, right? Where, or in all of the, they, they go through all the steps of all the stuff they're going to do. We it's just kind of see it happen. Yeah, it's all really subtle. There's no one big like Ocean's Eleven running it down. Yeah, you know, kind kind of thing. There's there's no there's no no that at no point does Macaulay or or any of the other characters sit there and say, okay, so here's what we're gonna do. You know, like we see blueprints and we see there's one moment where they like drill underneath the bank to remove the 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 camera computer. Yes, it's not like the beginning of the Dark Knight. 
where we watch this guy do this and this guy do this and this guy do this. By the time it comes to knock off the bank, they just walk in and knock it off. They just do it. Yeah. yeah. It all the all that the heist is the the gun shoot shoot out in the in the street afterward is the yeah. main focus of that whole thing. The rest of it's just waltz in, hit a couple guards over the head, tell people to get down on the ground, and then they're out. That's it. It's not they like. Ocean's Eleven is a good example. It's not that at all. It's not complicated. Uh, you know, I gave you a few films to choose from and you immediately jumped at this. Um, th- tell me about it. Like you're you're saying you weren't originally a huge fan of it, but now you're kind of you're you're warming to it. Yeah, maybe I'm just getting older or <laughs> the I've seen that the shootout now, you know, a million times. You can watch it on YouTube if you want to watch just that part, which is awesome. And mm-hmm. there's no question. But now I feel like it's all about the themes that are much more interesting in the, the characters. Usually in a lot of movies, one of my big complaints, a movies about obsession, particularly, um, which this is think like JFK movies about guys who are really good at their jobs and, or obsessed about something. A Zodiac would be another one. Yeah. yeah. The, my biggest problem with those movies is they always spend time focusing on the domestic side of it. Like, garrison from jfk it always goes back to him having to deal with his wife being mad and his kids and stuff and i get that that's part of it but come on i want to watch the jfk stuff in this movie i kind of like that i love it when vincent hannah's arguing with his wife about how he's got dead bodies and how he can't open up about all the things that are happening to him through his day i like ashley judd mad because uh, chris is spending all his money in vegas on the Super Bowl and whatever. And I like Macaulay and, and Emmy Brenneman and like their relationship. And it totally breaks up his rule about leaving things in 30 seconds. If you see the heater on the corner, um, I like all that stuff. Natalie Portman's character, like, I don't know. She's got some sort of, I don't know if she's bipolar or whatever, but she's very, she's troubled, has, <laughs> has some sort of trouble, some, and and that goes into those reasons why she why she has those problems like with her father and stuff and all that stuff in in other movies would just sort of be like oh come on let's get to it but in this movie all that stuff is a interesting and b important it's important to the story if you didn't have all that stuff then who gives a shit about de niro and pacino and all these guys it doesn't who cares one of the things that's kind of wild about this movie and obviously i love it um and you know that's that's why we're that's why we're talking about it today so in case people can't hear it in my voice this is this is a movie i i do believe that if people haven't seen um you know stop this podcast right now and just start watching it um you know clear the night it's a good it's a really good movie top to bottom really like just everything about it well acted well written well shot well scored everything 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 about it um but what I like about this movie is the way um, so many of these characters are are explored. And it's not even necessarily the ones you would think are, are really paid attention to. Like, I keep coming back to the way the film takes a moment to spend time with Breden, the Dennis Haysbert character. Like, this guy yeah. is only gently important to the plot he's important to the plot in the way that they find themselves in a corner and they need an out and they happen to see this guy and they know who this guy is and he's their out and any other movie they would just be like oh hey there's that guy we know that guy let's get him to be our driver but this movie 
it's like here's a guy we watched him walk onto a job that he's way too good for but he needs the paycheck because he's just out of prison and paychecks for a guy like him are limited and we watch him talking to his wife about how it's not a really good gig and you know he doesn't know what he thinks about it but he really wants to make a go of it and we watch him talk to his boss who's an absolute dick because he can be because a person like him is you know in this position so when that moment comes where they're like we need you are you in or are you out when he just says in like you know five seconds yeah i'm in we've had that time with him that we can understand it yeah, it's a big decision for him at that yeah. moment. And it's also those all those scenes you're talking about, they're good scenes. Mm-hmm. Like when with him and his wife at the at the diner and she says, I'm proud of you. Mm-hmm. And he's like, What do you mean you're proud? Like it's a good scene. Yeah. It's a good emotional dramatic scene, even though, like you said, this character's not he's not in the movie all that much. No. And he's barely integral to the plot at all. Um, they could have just had a driver. They could have just stuck with the Danny Trejo thing and gone with that. But they, he, he weaves this weird tale where shit happens. It's all that stuff is great. In a I, lesser I, it, movie, that scene gets cut. It would all be cut. Yeah, you know? for like sure. That's, that's the thing. It's like, why do we need to know about Don? We don't really need to. Like, you know, he. We all we need to know about Don is that they recognize him and they trust him. We don't even need to see him tell the boss off and like push him back into the trash. Just Mm -hmm. like, yeah, I'm in and walk off the scene. You know, there's another 30 seconds that you just saved. It's, it's kind of wild to watch this movie because you're watching De Niro and Pacino, both at the top of their game. And in the, you know, 25 something years since I kind of feel like both of those actors are doing some really stranger things with their career, but you watch something like this. It's like, Oh yeah, this is why people love you. Yeah. Definitely. I don't know if it's their like peak or their apex mountain, uh, but it's It's pretty close. It's pretty close. Like De Niro, he's just, I think he's coming off. Well, Goodfellas is a little bit earlier than this, but um, he did um, Cape Fear the same year. Okay. And Cape Fear, I think is right around that time. Um, So he's doing good stuff. Uh, Pacino. Yeah. But you're right. After this, like Pacino just becomes a caricature of himself. Kind of. Well, they De Niro both does do. really you know, they, they, both, they start, they show up every now and then in something good, but generally speaking, they both take the paychecks and become cartoons. So Pacino doing this movie, he's got two modes. He's got over the top yelly mode, which we've seen in a lot, but he seems to know when to turn it on and off. And then he's got this more cold calculating mode. He apparently found it within the character. He said that the character is a coke addict. And you just, you don't see him do it, but that's, that's the reason why he gets so crazy all the time is because he's hopped up on Coke. You know, there's, there's a scene where Nate, the John Voight character, he's giving Macaulay the rundown on Hannah. And that's another scene that I love. It's like, Mm -hmm. this is a movie where the bank robbers are so good that they can flip the script on the cop and get a profile on the cop. They can get a good jacket on the cop. He's giving him the rundown of Hannah and he's like, Hannah's an ex-Marine. Right. And we actually see when Macaulay is getting out of bed when, you know, like the night that he sleeps with Edie, we can see he's got a Marine tattoo on his arm. So you've got two guys, you've got a cop and a crook who are both super duper disciplined, you know, in terms of what they do and how they do it. And when they're talking to each other and even when they're talking to other people, you can see it. Hannah loses it a little bit more because he's, you know, hopped up on drugs. 
but I love seeing that, you know, discipline mentality in both of these guys, uh, you know, Pacino, Pacino, especially, but both of them really. The Coke scenes, <laughs> when you say he's on Coke, I think he actually was. That's entirely Coke. possible. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he was. I think the Hank Azaria scene, he's got a great ass and all that <laughs> stuff. My research has shown that Hank Azaria was not prepared for that. That was all Pacino just going off the reservation. Right. Um, so Hank Azaria's reaction to that is genuine. Like, what the fuck is going on right now? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Quitter, that was no, my one. Fun for that's your one. You got it. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, that, that I, Apparently that was legit. I don't know if that's true or not. But I that's totally what I believe read. it. He does turn it on and off, though. There's so many quiet, intimate moments with him it's great or where he's just thinking yeah but but then there's all these other scenes where his just eyes get as big as saucers and he's yelling and shouting starts weird stuff. when i get to phoenix yeah <laughs> just screaming stuff random weird stuff too that's definitely what makes him such a compelling character to watch mm-hmm. so and then and then yeah and then on the other side of it you've got to nero who i mean the the guy's a machine like he's 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 almost a monk in terms of his attachment to everything, like his place is just so sparse. Um, you know, he himself like is, is just so um, he's almost calculating to a fault. One of the things I gravitated towards in this movie was you watch him when Edie meets him in that diner and she just tries to like pick up conversation because she recognizes him. Right. And she's she, like from, like from her, from the bookstore where she works in and He's really rude to her and brushes her off. And he's like, lady, why do you care what I do and what I read? Um, and when she just really meekly says, I'm sorry, I recognize you from my store. I won't bother you if you don't want me to bother you. You watch him run the math really fast. I was just really, really rude to this woman. And she's just trying to be nice. And you watch him try to apologize and try to make the situation good because he is wired in a way that he can understand people and can like make adjustments really, really fast. It's amazing to watch. Yeah. I I think that's in his brain to just be uh, on his toes and paranoid about everything. Yeah. If you go back to the diner scene with him and Pacino, you watch him while he's having that conversation. He's constantly like looking around and scanning and looking what other people are doing. And like, he's super paranoid Um, needs to know where the exits are. Um, Yeah. Oh yeah. And so, yeah, he does that with her um, and then just says, okay, whoa, I need to, I need to just cool it here for a minute. And that's where he starts breaking his own rules. It is. And it's, but it's just, it's, it's amazing. Like everything about this guy is methodical. Even like, you know, he leaves a, he leaves a glass of water on the bedstand for Edie and you watch like the way the napkin is folded around the glass. I'm like, that is just that, that's precision to a fault you know, who <laughs> right, leaves right. a glass of water that way but that's just the way this guy's is, is is wired and uh de niro and, well, de niro just he does it so well and it saves him in the you know when they are trying to go into that one bank in the beginning or not yeah. at the beginning but at the 45 minute mark or whatever <laughs> yeah. um and he just all he all he does if that was me i just heard a noise um in a truck over there it could be anything yeah Cuts it, throws all the planning out the window, throws all the resources that they've just spent planning this heist, everything out the window. We walk, we go. 
and it saves him in that case. Yeah. And, it, and there's a great shot of him too, where they, where they're using the infrared camera on yeah. him and he's just staring right at us. Yeah. And the film, uh, does, the film does an amazing match cut back and forth of yeah. the two guys, like almost looking right at camera. And it's like, they're almost, they're, they're basically staring at each other, but they're not, but they're not. I know it's awesome. It's such yeah. a great camera move. Yeah. Um, but that, that's a case where that, that cold, calculating overly paranoid persona he has it saves him it's amazing to see um you know and and then they they get that is what leads into the whole thing of you know i take down scores because i i don't know what else to do (laughs) that's that's it's it's cool it's it's interesting to hear him say that he's like i mean this is a guy he probably could do anything if he ever really wanted to go straight he wouldn't be working in a diner flipping burgers for a minimum wage. If he wanted to go straight, he's got so many contacts on the outside. He could probably make a good little life for himself. He's not even, you know, he's not even Jack Foley in out of sight where he's going to be a security guard when he gets out to the real world. This is a guy who has enough in the outside world that he could live, but he's like, no, this is what I want to do this is what I'm good at this is what allows me to live comfortably. He gets caught. That's the irony of the whole movie is he gets caught because he finally allows himself to give in to instinct or like animal instinct. Like he gets caught because he goes back for Wayne grow, you know, and that's, and that's the amazing thing about this movie is they get screwed on a job early in this movie. They get screwed on a couple jobs, but they get screwed on this one job where Fickner as this guy, Roger Van Zant sets them up. Right. Like he throws more guys at them than says he's going to throw at them. And it's not actually money that he's picking up. It's a envelope full of paper and any kind of crook with any sort of integrity is going to go right back at him and kill him. You know, and he's, and he even says, he's like, there's a dead man on the other end of this phone. Uh-huh. But at the same time, De Niro recognizes in that moment that there is too much attention on them after that first heist that he calls him a luxury we can't afford. Like we gotta, we gotta let him go the same way that Hannah has to let them walk away from that surveillance. They have to let Van Zant go because they can't afford to give in to vengeance in that moment, you know? So he's doing fine. He got away with his money. He's like the, you know, it's him and Val Kilmer are going to walk away. You know, the Tom, Tom Sizemore is dead. Dennis Haysbert's yep. dead. Danny Trejo's dead. Two of these guys are walking away clean. And even, even then, like he's the one who gets to walk away with the family. You know, Val Kilmer has to forsake his family to walk in order to walk away. And he's got, and he's got there, but because he finally gives in to vengeance on Wayne grow, that's what costs him the one time, the one time he's had patience through the whole thing. And this is where it just, he becomes a hypocrite. No, I don't want to say he's a hypocrite, but breaks his own rule. And he knows too. He knows while he's doing it, this is a bad idea. Yeah. But he cannot help himself no. on that one. And uh, and the, going back to how, how they sort of put it off too, like Wayne Grow, when Wayne Grow and Van Sant get together, Wayne Grow, uh, Van Sant asks him, you know, where, where is this guy? Where Where is Macaulay? And Wayne Grow says, well, he's probably just busy right now. Um, he's got other things to do, but he's thorough. Yeah. Uh, he will be back. Uh, so I, 
Yeah, I like that. And I like that. Now, you just with those two characters, Van Sant and Wayne Grove, there's two more subplots mm-hmm. that are unrelated that come together. Yeah. Um, like Just in one sentence, you just mentioned like 45 minutes of the movie <laughs> with these two characters. It's super crazy how messy this movie should be, but totally is not. It's a Swiss watch. Like it's, yeah. it, all of the pieces are there. All of the pieces are very specifically designed and they all fit together so, so well. Um, you know, like right up to Natalie Portman doesn't have a ton to do as Lauren, as, as, as the stepdaughter. But, you know, when you realize that she's dealing with an absentee father who she mm-hmm. clearly adores, it is understandable that she would be deeply affected by her mom losing the relationship of a guy who actually is a father figure to her. Like we don't, we don't explore that too long. Like in a, in an actual director's cut, there might be more time spent between them, but you can tell that there's something unsaid between Hannah and, um, and Lauren. And that's why when she, you know, decides that she wants to, give into self-harm that she does it knowing that he's going to be the one to find her yeah i mean that's interesting subtext again in another movie that whole thing would be cut she probably wouldn't even barely be even in the movie no um, but they spend time like he picks her up at the bus stop and brings her home and they have conversations about her father with the two of them yeah it's such a it's such a deep character study on so many different people yeah um, i think i mean that that's what's that's what's wild about it is for a so-called cops and robbers movie for a crime movie for a heist movie. Most of this movie takes place from the neck up. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's 90% a drama you mentioned. I mean, obviously you're going to mention Pacino and De Niro working together and one upping each other, but it's not their movie. They're yeah. in it. Yeah. But it's not their movie. It's no. everybody's movie. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, they- it's Ashley Judd's movie. It's Val Kilmer's movie. It's mm-hmm. the Lord knows it's Tom Sizemore's movie. Yeah. Um, you know, like, I have never seen a guy do so much with one look as he does in that first diner scene. Two booths yeah. down, yep. all of a sudden, like, looks up because they're making noise. And Sizemore just leans his head out of the booth and looks straight at him. And it's it's just incredible. If, if anybody ever looked at you this way, you'd be like, I'm sorry. I got, I got nothing. Yeah, I got the same reaction as the guy in the booth. I'm yeah. going back to my paper. Yeah, I saw nothing. I heard nothing. <laughs> and he's got another, he's got a scene too, where they have to make a decision on whether they're going to do this or not. He says, mm-hmm. look, you've got bonds, you've got IRAs, you've got a lot of money stashed away. You got a wife and kids who love you. Are you sure you want to risk this? And he spends a good, like 30 seconds thinking about it and looking and then he finally decides, hey, for me, the action is the juice. I'm in. Mm-hmm. But that look that he has, like he goes for it there. Um, I think it's one of Tom Sizemore, even though he's not maybe in it as much as he's in Saving Private Ryan or Natural Born Killers. I think this is maybe his best movie performance wise. He's a badass. I mean, he's he's yeah. I love that he's. He's a man of few words in this one. Like Sizemore, it doesn't take much for Sizemore to play a cokehead. Like think about him in a movie like Bringing Out the Dead, you know, and how he's just so wound up in that movie. This movie, he's that guy who chooses his words very carefully. 
in a team of a lot of muscle, he's quite clearly the muscle. His contribution to this movie is kind of emblematic of a lot of the actors in this movie where they're not given a ton to do, but what they're given to do, they absolutely nail. For sure. You know? And is that... I mean, these guys aren't A-list stars oh, no. outside of Pacino I mean, and De Niro. I mean, a lot of them, a lot of them went so, on to be stuff like nobody knew who Dennis Haysbert was in right. this movie. This is a good five, seven years before Twenty Four. Yeah, um, you know, this is still Ashley Judd is still on her way up. Like uh, a time to Bell kill Kilmer, her. I guess, was kind of big. I suppose. Yeah. Is this these guys are that great, or is this partly because Michael Mann's a great director? Is it just great writing, and they were super into it? You know, had a really, really good casting agent as well, who you know thought, okay, who I need somebody to come in, give one scene where they talk about seeing a guy who wasn't really talking, and because he wasn't really talking, he knew that that meant that he actually had something to talk about, but he wasn't doing it. (laughs) Who can I get to play that guy? Oh, hey, I know. What about this rapper from the 80s who's got this cool voice? Yeah. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, who (laughs) thinks to cast Tone Loke in a movie for one scene? Everybody casting by Bonnie Timmerman. There you go. Good work, Bonnie. Everybody is good in this. And I, I think that's, I mean, they're, none of them are bad actors either. I don't mean to imply that. I just think that there's such a perfect storm here of great writing, great direction. The people that are around them, they sort of feed off each other, I think. Mm -hmm. um, And just make it work and come together really well. I think one of the things I like about this movie as well, you know, when I go back to these movies after a few years and I start, I start thinking about movies in a modern, through a modern lens and you know, the world sucks. (laughs) It really does. And the older you get and the more you realize about how much it sucks for people who aren't us, the harder it gets to really enjoy things that you used to enjoy. Like there's a lot of movies I put into a box. And one of the things I like about this movie is this movie doesn't exactly glorify policing. You know what I'm saying? Like there's no real uh, cops and robbers badassery in this movie that I think, um, you know, makes it feel problematic. It's a lot of, it's a lot of investigation is what it is more than it is people, you know, slamming heads against tables or yelling at witnesses or, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. There's, you know, the, the shootout is actually quite vicious and quite chaotic. It never, it never actually makes the cops look cool or look badass. And I think that's, that was a hard thing to do. Then there's a lot of movies from the time that are not aging very well because they make the police look like more heroic than police can be. Um, that's interesting to see that in a cops and robbers movie, it's not about painting the cops as these, this virtuous beacon of society. Yeah. I mean, it's a spectacle, but it's not a spectacle. Yeah. Like I remember one of the things that everybody was talking about that shootout is how like realistic it felt and how kind of scary it was. And it puts you in as a standby, a person standing by just going about their business that day seeing this shit go down um it's intense it's insane mm-hmm. and it doesn't it's not made to look cool it is cool but it's not i don't think that's the intent like it, it's, it's just so chaotic yeah you know it, it's meant it's it really instills and i mean 
it's, you know, it's a little wild the way the world has gone in 30 years that it seems, you know, a little bit more plausible, unfortunately, but it's meant to put you into that Los Angeles plaza with not just with gunfire going around, but with like really, really heavy gunfire. You know, yeah. if we're talking about assault rifles on all sides. That's bananas to consider. And it's it's also like military. I don't know if it's military style exactly, but it's tactical. Yeah. Like they, they do the scoot and shoot stuff and mm-hmm. go and they cover each other and know how to lay down suppressing fire correctly and how to reload quickly. And there's all that stuff that I've been told also that they sort of, um, there is training ops yeah. f- coming from this movie. Val Kilmer reloads a magazine and they actually show that um, as, as you know, within training for armed forces as this is how you reload it quickly and properly. Right. You know, and so it, it, it again, it's flashy, but it's not flashy. It's yeah. it's just what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just comes off great. And the realism there is just awesome to watch late in this movie we get this diner scene it's before the shootout it's probably about halfway through the film between macaulay and hannah and it's what everybody talks about when they talk about this movie is this sit down between de niro and pacino you know they haven't acted at the time i don't think they'd acted together on screen um, yep. you know, now obviously they have in the Irishman, um, but you watch them in this movie and what I loved about it, watching it this week, they're kind of like comparing scars. They're kind of comparing war wounds when they're, when they're talking about what they do and how they do it and why they do it. Like it, it's, I don't think it's, it's a small coincidence that I had watched jaws a few weeks before. So I had that in, on my brain of the scene in the boat where they're, where they're comparing their scars. Mm. But when you watch that scene, like Michael Mann has done that kind of scene a few times where the good guy and the bad guy have one conversation over the course of the film. This one is neither one of them is taunting. Neither one of them is really trying to get under the other's skin. They're just both trying to size each other up. But what I love about it is this way that they come into it talking about their damage. You think this is going to be a big standoff scene trying to one up each other, but it ends up sort of being a heart to heart. Yeah. Talking about their family. Yeah. Talking, like you said, their scars, not Mm -hmm. their, their emotional scars. They realize that, wow, we're, we're kind of the same guy just on opposite sides of the law. Yeah. Um, So again, it's just drama. It's just good drama. It's not a thriller or, action going on yet it's just it's just good character development between these two and it really forms a bond in it i mean it the the final scene at the airport um that all resonates because of this conversation Mm -hmm. um like that's where it all comes together uh i i do wish this scene was shot a little bit better but i just I just don't, I, it's so static. It's just a camera over the shoulder and then a camera over the, his shoulder. And that just cuts back and forth. I wish there was a little bit more dynamic to the, the that's a nitpick though. It's, it's a nitpick. Cause it, it is about just the dialogue. You know, in the story, this is the first time that Hannah and Macaulay meet. Um, apparently because of that, um, De Niro and Pacino didn't rehearse the scene together. 
Um, like they obviously rehearsed it on their own so that they would know their lines, but they both wanted this scene to seem so much like a sizing up of each other and to have that uncomfortability with each other, that, that, that first meeting, not first meeting jitters, but you know, when you sit down with somebody who's really smart, you know, you can kind of sense them sizing you up. You know, a lot of times like you'll, you'll meet somebody and they won't do a lot of the talking. They'll let you talk because they want to learn about you. You've got two of these guys, right? You've got two of these guys who are methodical to a fault and they're both trying to size the other up. And it's like, okay, who moves first? Um, That's all part and parcel with them not rehearsing the scene before they started shooting it. That's super interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. But that makes sense. We'll, I'll. I'll see how this other guy approaches this scene. Um, so I'll kind of know how to react with my, how to, how to change my delivery and my lines. That's, that's kind of cool. Yeah. There was suggestions at the time that they actually didn't film that scene because the camera never really, I think it does, but the camera never really shows them together. It's always this over the shoulder. Like I said, so there was rumors and whispers at the time that they actually didn't film the scene <laughs> together, that it, they were talking to a stand-in that uh, that's been debunked. Right. But that goes into how it was shot is not particularly impressive in my opinion. It's, but that your your point is interesting. I mean, you know, like a, a show that that to me gets back to how Michael Mann likes to treat his characters. Like and it's 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 kind of trippy to me that Michael Mann has actually been off the grid for a while. Um, the last movie he made was black hat, which was at least five years ago now, probably longer. Yeah. You know, I did a, I did an Oscar podcast, um, about the year 1977 in film. And we were talking about how there was a director that year, um, whose name escapes me. And I mean, there's, there's a sign right there. The, the, this one director had two films up for best picture in the same year. He had, um, he had the goodbye girl and he had turning point and he got nominated for best director of one of them. I think he got the nomination for best director for the goodbye girl. And then it was one of these years where one of the directing slots went to somebody whose movie didn't even get up for best picture. Um, and I talked about on that podcast, how, artists and you know directors writers what have you they are a brand for 10 15 years thereabouts and then all of a sudden they're just like forgotten or not even forgotten but they're there's not the name recognition that there used to be so if you were to talk right now to like a senior class of a film school about like the directors that inspire them you're gonna hear names like Paul Thomas Anderson. You're going to hear names like Ari Aster. You can hear names like Robert Eggers. Um, you're not going to necessarily hear Michael Mann, even though, you know, he was the shit for a good 20 years there. When you think about movies like heat and last of the Mohicans and the insider and that kind of thing, it's, it's, it's kind of wild the way this goes. And Michael Mann knew how to do an awful lot. When you talk about wanting to see this conversation a little bit showier, you know, like maybe like sweep the camera around the table yeah. or something like that, like that, that's, yeah. that's how I do it. That just wasn't it, it. That was just never his way. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. It's, that's just how it is. A lot of the, 
a lot of the shots in this movie are just static shots. There isn't. Yeah, I'm not saying I want uh, Michael Bay. I, I, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> you don't want the Bay hand? <laughs> yeah, no. Um, boy, that would make this movie a lot different. Oh, no um, shit. But uh, that's not what I meant. But yeah, you're right. I mean, and again, it's just a nitpick. It isn't like, oh, this movie's terrible because he didn't shoot this scene that way. No, it's but just... I mean, it's it's worth noting. It's for for a scene that you know everybody talks about as this one of the centerpieces of this movie. It's it's pretty low key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Super low key. And maybe he was fully aware. Yeah. I'm going to shoot it this way on purpose mm-hmm. because this is how I want it to look that fair enough. Having said everything that we've said about theme and all these other deep characters and all the drama, that's interesting, all that stuff. The movie still is uh remember that scene where that happened. <laughs> all right. motherfuckers. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. uh, and the heist, both the heist, that opening scene where they shoot the guy, anything with Wayne Grow, um, like there's so many scenes that are just like worth talking about or, you know, with your buddies. Remember yeah. this when that happened? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was great. Oh, remember when this happened? That was great. Like, it's still that movie, too. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, yeah it's that's just wrapped up in all this other stuff. I mean, that's, I think that's, that's what I like about it is a lot of times... I mean, we're, it's funny that I've got you on this, on this podcast because I've never taken so many tangents on one episode. <laughs> Bo is afraid we got on a lot of tangents too, actually, but that movie's just lends itself to tangents. Um, a movie I think about that makes a really, really good match piece to this. And maybe you were going to bring this up later. I don't know, but a good match piece to heat is drive, you know, both right. LA movies, both crime movies, uh, both really stoic characters in the in the center of them, but as much as Drive is a cool movie where a lot of stuff happens, there's not a lot going on in the story. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, you're right. There's you know while the, and maybe that was why the movie drew me in in the first place. As a you know, I would have been like sixteen, seventeen when I first saw it in lieu of something that has fallen away. Like there's been a lot of movies like this that have fallen away. And I think eventually even a movie like drive is going to fall into the background is that while it is, remember that scene, remember that scene, remember that scene, when you play it for somebody who's just coming into it for the first time, they're going to be like, man, this is just craft and story and performance off the hook wrapped around remember that scene remember that scene remember that scene i think that was my initial reaction i saw it in college at the theater you know i was like 20 or something and awesome awesome and then we got that double vhs tape that you're talking about maybe dvd at the time can't remember but i would watch it a second time and the second time i watched it i'm like "Uh, i kind of just want to get to that next awesome scene so so that way went for well, maybe 20 years until more recently when now I don't do that anymore. I don't yeah. need to skip through the conversation between E and Macaulay out on the balcony. I, I want that now, but yeah. 20 years ago, eh, let's skip ahead to the part where <laughs> they're let's get them running the it down again. Yeah, 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 exactly. So this leads to the question of, you know, a film that I pose to you that we talk about because it's one of my favorites and, film that you know we're talking about is you know 27 years old now 27 28 
28 years old now. Um, does this movie hold up? Oh, for sure. For sure. It holds up. I mean, yeah, it's got some 90 stuff. There's pay phones and flip phones and stuff like that, but there's no tech. That's the one thing that's, yeah. that's so oh, trippy to see is there's such a, there's yeah, pagers. I forgot about that scene. There's, there's pagers in this movie, but I mean, that's, that's one of the wild things to see with this, you know, now if you were to stage it now, there will be an awful lot more tech, you know, kind of running interference. I, you know, I don't think that like Macaulay and his crew would communicate using tech as much because they're obviously worried about being caught, but that's the one thing that really kind of nails it down as a nineties movie is the lack of tech. What makes it really nineties is there is the one scene where he's meeting with John Voight's liaison or whoever that guy is Noonan, at the cabin. Uh, oh, yeah, played by Tom whatever. Noonan. Yeah. It is basically, scene. yeah, he's basically talking about the internet. Yeah. But this is like just barely at when, before the internet hit the mainstreams and yeah. Macaulay's like, what? where are you getting this information? And the guy's like, it's just floating around out there. And I just grab it, <laughs> which is basically saying it's a series of tubes. <laughs> and, this, <laughs> and you just got to know where to grab. Mm-hmm. He's basically saying, I got it on the internet. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's kind of funny now. Yeah. 28 years later, but that's what that was. So yeah, no tech except for that little bit. Yeah. And pagers. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to rewatch it and say, yeah, this movie still rocks. Uh, you know, I, I can still keep the copy of that on the shelf and I can still proudly say, oh yeah, I love this movie. Um, and that's not, I mean, that's not always the case. You end up watching something and you realize how much the world has changed and how much you've changed. And, you know, you look at it and either it's like, I don't think I like this as much as I used to, or there was a really big problem in the middle of this movie that I never noticed before, you know, that kind of thing, or just, your your taste change but um happily when it comes to a movie like this even though it's not really about like heroes and bad guys like you know the the so-called hero of this movie is still a coked out you know third marriage verbally abusive cop but at the same time like he's painted in such a way that you know he's not a walking talking problem mm-hmm. um no i i still love this movie i think it i think it absolutely holds up if and, uh, yeah not only does it hold up i think as i've said it changes as you get older there are a lot of movies like this where you just view things from a different point of view yeah I, like when you're 20 you're gonna watch this movie in a completely different way than when you're 40 yeah. and i'm not talking about it's 1995 versus 2025 i'm talking about me as a person yeah watching it now yeah uh, i watch it from a completely different perspective point of view Mm -hmm. different world views and experience Mm -hmm. um so Mm -hmm. it makes it a different movie in good ways yeah i mean even you know i think the one thing i never really soaked up before is what turns macaulay around on really pushing his chips into the middle of the table with Edie, is he goes out to that one dinner with um chris and uh chris and charlene are on the one side of the table oh yeah chorito's there yeah chorito actually has like a family he's got a wife and a kid which you wouldn't think for a guy Mm -hmm. who's that you know that much of a lunkhead but he's he's sitting there looking at these families looking at these couples 
and you watch him watching them, you know, and he immediately like makes a beeline to the phone to call Edie and like, you know, set up another date. But seeing that, you know, like I, I don't think in the past I really noticed the way he was watching the other people and watching them in that way. That's the kind of thing now I look at, like I watch people watching people and I'm able to see more of their thought process put into their, into their demeanor. Yeah. So. Yep. Definitely. You, it, there's a lot of things. This is one of those movies where there's details. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. Watch it 30 times and yeah. pick out new stuff. You've every seen time. It. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I've, seen, I've seen this. I can't count the number of times I've like, this is one of those ones when I started like collecting movies, like when I started collecting tapes and collecting DVDs, this was one of the first ones that I got. Cause just, it was like right when I got really into film was when this film showed up. So I've watched this movie a ton over the years and I'm still seeing things that I haven't seen in a long time. Um, you know, so yeah, so obviously we're not going to rate this movie cause we both think cause it's awesome. Uh, I think you can hear that in our voice, but we will uh, take a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could keep, from this movie you would andrew james what would be your souvenir from heat i really struggled with this for some reason <laughs> I, I don't i mean obviously a duffel bag full of dollar bills would be that bag is bills capricious. Would be, but that um I, yeah so i really struggled really i i don't know um the the uh the abandoned drive-in i would love to own that uh you know fix it up because drive-ins are kind of coming back in some yeah, yeah. places in some ways um be kind of cool to own that for them. oh for sure yep we've still got a couple here um so yeah i'd love to own that then i could screen beastmaster every friday night and uh and make money off of it too I love it. but I love no it. i've always wanted to own my own theater so that'd be kind of neat to have a drive-in okay okay i like it um i'm gonna go back to something I wanted the first time this movie came out. Um, and it's, it's an odd thing for me cause it's not really in my wheelhouse, but it's something that seeing it again, I was like, Oh, I wanted that. Um, I want Hannah's car. Hannah drives an unmarked crown Vic and it's not what you'd call like a sexy car, but just watching when he drove it, like how much pickup it had it. Cause it's a cop car. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's tripped out. Um, I always wanted that car when I was growing up. Like I remember calling my dad over. I'm like, what kind of car is this? That looks like a really cool car. He's like, yeah, it is a cool car. Um, I want Hannah's crown Vic. Funny. Awesome. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah it's not like Miami vice. Cars. No, no, it's not. It's not uh, like it's, drive. Yeah. You know? Okay. So that's funny. Cause I was telling my wife, I'm struggling with this souvenir question. She's like, well, what about the cars? And I'm like, well, they're just kind of cars in this. this yeah. There's yeah. no Ferrari or anything, no, but, I, but yeah, good Grab point. It. Well, I, I like it. it. There we go. <laughs> Heat 1995. If you've never seen it, it's around. Um, it's in Canada, it's on Prime. It's on Crave. It's it turns up all over the place. Um, take a look. Take a watch. You know, clear an evening and watch some amazing action, some top quality uh, acting, and uh, consider it my birthday gift to you. We are going to take a very quick break here and come back on the other side. So uh, come join us. We'll talk about even more movies because that's what we do. We 
are back. It's Matt and Acast 306 birthday episode. Happy birthday to me. It's the other side. He is Andrew James of the Row 3 Cinecast. I'm Ryan McNeil. We have been talking about heat. We both love it. We both think it's awesome. Um, this is the part of the show where we actually talk about other movies, not just get off on our little side missions that we we, we tend to get to uh, during the, the new slang. Um, you got a few, so why don't you get us started? What was one of the movies you thought about that somebody could go on to um, and really go down a rabbit hole after heat? Um, well, I tried to think of what other movies are like heat and there were a lot of there's a lot of copycats after oh, yeah. heat oh, but yeah. there's nothing really like it it's yeah. really it really does stand alone as kind of its own thing mm-hmm. um that said there are some there are some things that kind of relate to it and i would say one of them is um david mamet's spartan oh uh, which also stars val kilmer you never hear people uh, talking about spartan I, anymore it's so underrated now i haven't seen it for quite a while so i can't talk about it too in depth but i know it does still have that sort of it's a it's a crime thriller starring val kilmer and he's trying to find a missing girl um and it's just got a really smart david mamet not gonna hold your hand script mm-hmm. like it just throws you in the middle of the of the shit and you makes the audience figure out what's going on and, and you just go from there and it's all. And again, it's kind of about obsession. Um, it's nowhere near as plot crazy, obviously as heat. It's, it's a lot more simple, um, but it's just smart and sparse. And um, there's all sorts of themes. Again, it's been a while, but I remember her, Kurt and I talking about it way back when on the Cinecast um, about all these themes that are, intertwined throughout it um and its title has meaning Mm -hmm. um and then the the val kilmer connection i guess with heat did you see top gun yes (laughs) that was that 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 was (laughs) that must have been the best use of val kilmer oh my god it was so good yeah it was so good yeah i i've really come to appreciate val kilmer's particularly after he released that documentary about himself watched Oh, it's it's, it's pretty around. Yeah, it's, I, I'm sure I can find it real easy. I think it's on. I'm pretty sure it's on Prime. I think um, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Spartan is it's a really fun action movie. Well, again, not really an action movie, kind of an investigative crime thriller movie, um, but sort of in that similar vein. I mean, it's it's another one of these movies that's, you know, I'm like you. I'm a horror for good writing. And David Mamet is one of those guys who always brings amazing writing to the forefront. I think of, you know, there's just one moment where they're out in the middle of the desert trying to find, uh, you know, trying, trying to trying to track down the lead of this missing girl. And they come across somebody and he goes to Val Kilmer, please, please just take me with you. I'll be like a brother to you. And without missing a beat. Kilmer goes, oh, my brother always beat me. <laughs> like things, <laughs> things like that. It's weird. I can barely remember like, you know, my own social insurance number. And yet I can remember random lines like that. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, like, and, I gotta look for Spartan. Part of the reason I haven't watched is because it doesn't, it, it's not on Blu-ray, I don't think. Like oh, I wow. have the DVD, mm-hmm. but it's not on Blu-ray. It is on some streaming services though. So I should just buy it. It's like 10 bucks on Voodoo. I don't know. I need to rewatch it. It's it's really great and super underrated. Awesome. No, I, I it's it's 
I, I remember that I saw it in theaters, but I don't think I've watched it a single time since. Um, and I really got a, I really, yeah, th- that's one yeah, of those movies. Definitely that, um, oh yeah. I mean, yeah, like I can, you know, I can rent it off Apple. It's on Cineplex mm-hmm. up here. Oh, definitely. Um, well, one of mine that I thought about, we actually gave it back when we used to do the other side as two full selections. And we talk about each movie for like five minutes or so. We talked about this uh, for for a good little piece. We talked about it in relation to a most violent year with Oscar Isaac and um, Jessica Chastain. When was the last time you watched The Friends of Eddie Coyle? I don't think I've ever seen it. Oh, okay. In that case, this is my birthday gift to you. 1973. Okay. It's it's kind of a neo-noir movie. It stars Robert Mitchum. Um, Peter Boyle is kind of the, the, the co-star to it. It was directed by Peter Yates. And Coyle is this gun runner um, who is, you know, small, kind of small time in, in Massachusetts. Um, he's, he's really, really good at finding the good scores, setting up the, the, the team that's going to do them. And then, you know, taking the payout and eventually one of these heists turns on him. And, you know, he's the guy who's supplying the outfit. Peter Boyle is, you know, back when this is back, like long before everybody loves Raymond. You know, this is back when Peter yep. Boyle was, it's back before, um, it's Johnny back, dangerously. It's, like, it's, this is just I was cool. going to say it's back before young Frankenstein, you know? Okay. So yep. Peter Boyle is still kind of, still kind of a badass when you see him in, in this kind of thing. Um, and just, yeah, watching these two play off each other, watching Mitchum play this working class crook, you know, like the, the kind of like, you know, don't get me wrong. The, the crooks in heat, they have really plush little lives, but Eddie Coyle is not quite like that. Like he's just kind of living paycheck to paycheck. It just so happens his paychecks are supplying guns to crooks and it's so good. There's this great finale in the Boston garden when they're watching, they're watching a hockey game. They're watching Bobby Orr play hockey and it's, you know, like things are happening around them while they're watching this hockey game. So there's all this tension about what's going to go on in this arena of 16,000 people. Um, it's such a good movie. I don't know. I think it shows up on the Criterion channel from time to time, but it's, it's, yeah, it's one of these okay. movies that we talked about it in relation to a most violent year. Cause it had a lot of ties to that movie that I just, I love it so much. And I thought it would make a great double feature with heat. It's, it's funny. I went to the letterbox profile for this movie and it's Robert Mitchum talking to somebody in a diner. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he looks like De Niro kind of, yeah. which is funny because he played the same character in Cape fear as <laughs> Robert yep. De Niro. So there's kind of a weird tangential. Yeah. It's, thing going it's on there. got layers. But I love it. This looks awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for my birthday present. It looks... I will definitely check this out. It's great. I love Peter Boyle, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're, and it's like, it's it's always awesome, like, watching these guys. Like, um, you know, at this point, Mitchum, he's not quite in his prime, but he's kind of like... 
he's kind of just past the code. Like, you know, just give it the sniff test and you can drink it. <laughs> it's kind of that era of, of, of this, of this star. Yeah. It's, it's a great movie. It's, it's great after heat. Um, what's one of the other ones that you had to, to go with? Um, yeah. One of the other ones, I, this one is, I guess, kind of obvious. So maybe this is on your list too, but for sure, Ronan. Oh, I did. Um, <laughs> I didn't actually have that. Oh, uh, yeah. De Niro, um, as of the cold calculating, very smart criminal um, with his crew. And they got it. There's a heist. This one, though, is a lot more like uh, not cloak and dagger exactly, but there's a lot of like backstabbing and double crossing. And well, Sean um, Bean's in it. So a lot know. much more action. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it's a lot more action. But it's still it's still there's something about it. It's all it's all cold and gray, like very precise. Mm hmm even though heat is kind of all over the place and lots of strings and strands to keep in the old duder's head, it is still precise. And that's how Ronan is too. Like, it's just like Vincent Hanna said, sharp on the edge where yeah. it's gotta be. Um, and it has a similar vibe. I, I think mostly because De Niro is kind of playing a very similar character. Um, He's a little bit more working class in that one. Like, you know, he's obviously True. not a Marine in, in Ronan. Um, I mean, it's another cast that goes and goes and goes. Cause you got De Niro, uh, Jean Reno, Natasha McElhone, who I miss like crazy. I haven't seen her in anything in a long time. Stellan yeah. Skarsgård, Sean Bean, Jonathan Price is in this movie as well. Uh, going back to Spartan. This one was also written by David Mamet. Um, Right. You know, and also kind of going along with what I said about heat too, is that this is another one of those movies where you watch it in the theater and it's awesome. And then you, as you rewatch it, you kind of just, uh, let's just get to the car chase. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's just get to that shootout. Uh, let's just get, but as you watch it more, those things start to become less important and it's way more about the character interactions and seeing who can, even though you know who you can't trust and who you can trust. Yeah it's still fun to watch those guys interact with each other. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of trippy because this is a Frankenheimer movie. Um, you love Frankenheimer because of you know, seconds. Like, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. what's it? Yeah. Seconds. All right. Um, but Frankenheimer also did the Manchurian candidate, which also ends in a similar way that Ronan does. Like both of them have this, um, you know, they're both older movies, so I don't worry about talking about the end of them. But both yeah. of them have assassins in the rafters of a very, very large space um, in, in both movies. Uh, so it's it's kind of interesting to watch a a director crib from themselves. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. Lots oh. of directors do that. Yeah, no kidding. I, I love this director. I 52 Pickup, I love. I'm an apologist for Reindeer Games. Like I, I don't think I've like ever actually anyway. seen Reindeer Games. Oh, it's hated on big time. It's Affleck and Charlie Theron and Gary Sinise. It's kind of a corny <laughs> heist caper thing, but I I think it's great. I, it's just a fun popcorn movie, but yeah. nothing to do really with Heat. It's just the same director as uh, Ronan. Another one that I did watch recently and remembered this movie slays, another movie whose cast goes and goes and goes. I did want to play the... Michael Mann double feature because you're going to talk in a second about the actual sequel 
to heat that's uh, a book that was published this year that apparently they are working on filming um so that's that's going to be a thing but if there was a spiritual sequel to heat what i always felt it was was from 2004 collateral with yeah. tom cruise jamie fox another cast that goes and goes and goes because jada pinkett smith mark ruffalo bruce mcgill it's i think it's one of the first times i ever saw javier bardem um you know this is after before night falls but before uh things like um vicky christina barcelona and obviously uh no country for old men collateral is another movie where it's more talky than action like there's a lot more gunplay in collateral because it's about an assassin and he's got five hits to make over the course of this night so there's more times where tom cruise gets himself into a skirmish um but it has that same um economic approach to its violence it's got that same respect for los angeles as a city um you know most of a lot of heat takes place and during the day collaterals all during the evening um and I've, I've watched this movie again recently like i think i watched it like just three or four weeks ago it totally holds up this movie's incredible yeah i mean it's you could argue it's tom cruise's best movie at least in terms of like character and performance. Well, I just, I love that it's a movie where Tom Cruise is not playing Tom Cruise. Like we talked about Maverick yeah. for a second there and you know, Tom Cruise playing Maverick is not hard. That's basically his entire career where various versions of Maverick. Sure. Yeah. You know, here Michael Mann got him to get a little outside of his comfort zone, not play the good guy. You know, he, you know, gave him the gray hair. He's obviously always had the, the brunette hair and, and not let him be the, the all American boy. And he just, I, I wish, you know, Tom Cruise has a lot of problems, but I wish he had been doing things like this all along because it suits him so well. Yeah, it does. I love when he steps out, when he does stuff like Magnolia or just steps out of his, his comfort zone. Um, but here's another movie that's just so, he's so precise. Mm -hmm. I just, I love to use that word when it comes to these, these films. Cause that's just, I feel like that's how it is in the filmmaking. And I feel like that's how the characters are. Yeah. Collateral. And I knew you were going to say that it was either going to be that or Miami vice. You were going to say as the, and I love that movie too. I will yeah. go to bat for that movie every day but, of the week, but collateral it's, it's so rewatchable and holds up so well. And like a lot of it is just them driving around in the cab. Yeah. Having a discussion. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love the stuff where he's talking about the best way to get from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. He does that with Jada Pickett Smith in the mm -hmm. beginning. Mm -hmm. um, like all, it's just all the, the conversations, but there's so many good, like thrilling sequences too. the scene. I, the, my favorite scene is where he sends Jamie Foxx into the club mm -hmm. who he has to pretend to be some, some guy. Yeah. Uh, he's like, figure it out, man. It's like, what? You're sending me into the den of thieves and telling me to just be this guy. Um, I'm just a cab driver. Yeah. He's like, well, figure it out. And he does. It's such a good scene. That's the Javier Bardem scene, I think. Yeah. And it's um, like, he, what, it. yeah, that's um, Jamie Foxx basically impersonating Tom Cruise without actually impersonating Tom Cruise. Like, we mm -hmm. all know that Jamie Foxx is like a freakishly gifted mimic. You know, along with, I mean, the man is, the man is 
immensely talented. Like he's a master musician. He's a great actor. He's funny as hell, but he's a really, really great impersonator, you know? Uh, and, and what I love about that, that moment is he's doing Tom Cruise without actually doing Tom Cruise. Yeah. 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 That's, that's who he's supposed to be. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. I couldn't, I didn't remember that, but yeah, yeah. That's he, exactly he repeats right. stuff that, that Vincent yeah. had said to him earlier. Um, mm-hmm. All right. You got one more. What do you got? Uh, yeah. So as you mentioned, well, in the previous segment, we talked about, Oh, well, where, where the hell's Michael Mann been? Well, he wrote a book, um, heat two, which as you also mentioned is in production. Um, and I, I won't spoil the book, but I, I will say it's really good. I think people should check it out. It's a super easy read because it's just, it's very similar to heat. Um, except it's sort of a, it's a prequel and a sequel to okay. heat. Okay. So for, Chris Chirillis, the the Val Kilmer character, it takes place after Heat and him like recovering from his gunshots and what he's going to do about the Ashley Judd character and and where he goes and what he does and that's a whole epic like adventure story. It's great. Um, and then it also goes back to before the events of Heat, where it sort of gives you Vincent Hanna's not his backstory exactly, but just another case that he's working on with a super. Um, super villain basically that puts wayne grow to makes wayne grow look like a princess okay okay so he's following this investigation meanwhile neil mccauley chorito um and his crew are planning another heist and then those two stories come together and then it all sort of the future and the past sort of collide in this in the middle somewhere and um it's while you're reading it it's so fun to the, I mean, the writing is just, wow, this is exactly what Vincent Hanna would say. Right. This is exactly how M- Neil McCauley would talk and behave and because it's Michael Mann who wrote it, who wrote the original Heat. So it's it's such an easy read in that it, it's like an old friend. You're coming back to these characters that you really like, and it's not it's not a cash grab or just okay. something to do. It's I think it's a real passion that Mann had to there's more with these characters. It's like he kind of gave it the Godfather treatments. Like the, the actual book for the Godfather goes back into Vito's past. Like all the stuff from Vito's past in the Godfather Two, all the Robert De Niro stuff that's in the book for the Godfather. So when Ah, they made the movie, when they made Godfather Two, they're like, well, let's tell the past, but we also need to extend the for the story forward. So let's extend the the story beyond the novel and also include the shit from the novel that we edited out because we couldn't tell it all because it's a 400 page book. It's it, so it sounds like it's like that. Okay. I definitely got to read this. I mean, I've got time because it's not coming out this year. Um, but I, yeah, I definitely got to, I was curious like how they would approach heat two as a book. I'm optimistic, you know? Of, yeah. of, of, I, oh, I'm very read. optimistic. Easy read, easy to check out. Sorry. And I just remembered one other thing really quickly. Uh, you probably know this heat is a remake of itself yeah it was gonna la be a, takedown yeah it was gonna be a tv series um called la takedown and there's one actor who who made the jump i noticed that and i've seen this guy in other things the guy that is sleeping with al pacino's wife in heat oh, is it, oh it's um, him ralph yeah, ralph. yeah yeah right that guy I think he, that guy's in Air Force One too. I think he's the double crossing agent. Anyway, he's in LA Takedown. Okay. 
So this is a movie. Like it's out. You can see it sort mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. Um, I just looked at a. Oh, Michael Rooker's in it. Weird. Um, I just looked at a couple scenes on YouTube real quick this afternoon. Yeah. And it's got dial. I mean, it's it's heat. It's okay. the same dialogue. It's just yeah. not delivered as well because it's different actors, different actors and it's made for TV. But it's word for word, beat for beat, essentially the same movie. Hmm. Just I'll have to, I'll have to see if I can, yeah, shake it loose just just for just for shits and giggles, just for interest sake. Yeah, yeah it's only in the interest of science. Well, there we go. That is episode three hundred six of the matinee cast. I am truly thankful that Andrew James was able to come by uh, and join me. Come on back on Monday, June twelfth for episode three hundred seven. I think we're going to talk about you hurt my feelings. Uh, you know, movies around this time of year they they they're, they're jockeying with the big boys for screens so who knows what we're going to see when but that might be what we talk about people can follow you on letterbox is probably the best place for them that's it and i love to chat on letterbox there we go. Um, so it's just andrew underscore james at, nice. on letterbox yeah nice my site is the matinee.ca for more audio content you can find back episodes there um as i said if you're curious about birthday episodes i'm going to post them in the show notes this post um you can also find them on um all the usual places apple google spotify Pocket Cast, stitcher radio uh, a bunch of newer places basically anywhere podcasts are found my show's there if you don't find it let me know i'll put it there um everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop feedback on heat can be left in the comment section of the site you can email me ryan at the matinee.ca on twitter i am still sort of there mostly posting songs and books matinee underscore ca but if you want to talk to me i'm there too um any final thoughts mr james take her easy dude <laughs> well said for andrew i'm ryan we'll see you at the matinee